This episode of Everything About Hydrogen is brought to you by Biotech. The future of hydrogen is here, and Biotech is leading the way by disrupting the established centralized hydrogen supply chain with a new highly efficient model of local production hubs. Biotech produces hydrogen close to demand and transports it via high-pressure, high-capacity storage trailers. Fewer truck trips translates to lower transportation costs, lower emissions, and safer roads. It's the first step in making hydrogen more affordable and accessible today. Visit Biotech.us to learn how Biotech makes hydrogen easy. From the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, General Counsel at Biotech, and joining me from a few blocks down the road here in Washington is Patrick Malloy, Manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI. And, of course, Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, who is calling in, as always, from London. On this episode of EAH, we are delighted to have as our guest Maria Fennis, the CEO of Hyatt Hydrogen. Founded in 2008, Hyatt Hydrogen is a leading SME in the field of electrochemical hydrogen compression, and we are very pleased that Maria made the time to sit down with us. And we cannot wait to share our conversation with her, with you, our listeners. But before we get into it, we'd just like to remind everyone that if you have any questions for us here at Everything About Hydrogen, please shoot us an email at info at h2podcast.com or give us a shout on Twitter at, at About Hydrogen. All right, let's get this episode started. All right, guys, welcome back. Pretty good uh, episode last week with the governor, but I think we're going to switch gears uh, this week and head over to the, is it, she in the Netherlands, I believe, right? Yep, yeah. yeah. Europe. We're going from North America to Europe. All right. I thought we'd Sweet. say that, talking about hydrogen after our first two seasons of talking about how far the U.S. was behind. That's right. Yeah, see, yeah. the U.S. is catching up, man. Well, all the noises are right. How are you guys doing? Chris, we'll start with you. Uh, all good. Um, busy. Uh, I think uh, that probably seems a bit cliched and maybe a bit trite. I'm realizing I, I need to come up with a better response when people ask me than just saying busy now. But um, no, I think it's good. I, I think um, rightly or wrongly, people are having the debate about discussion about hydrogen and having it not just in very small, closed LinkedIn circles, but it is a much broader conversation. I think that is a sign that a, people are looking at it seriously, and B, that people are engaging with all the things it can do and that it can't do, or at least kind of assessing how it fits alongside other options. And I think that is fantastic. And in the build up to the COP26 and um, the International Climate Finance Summit as well in the UK in October, really, I think we're kind of in the eye of a fascinating storm. And I think, uh, I don't know, I'm at least quietly hopeful that, uh, you know, we might actually get something really nice coming out of all of this. Who knows? Who would have thought that uh, we might actually have a successful climate conference after COVID and Trump and all of this garbage? What about you, Andrew? What's, uh, what's life like stateside? I mean, it feels like uh, you guys are sort of back to normal, but if America's ever really normal, I don't even know if that's a good descriptor anymore. <laughs> I'll take that from the British side of the conversation. I think uh, all good here. Can't complain, man. Uh, you know, as it, as you pointed out, LinkedIn is a real uh, hydrogen bloodbath these days. So I've been monitoring that, doom scrolling through a bunch of those comments. But other than that, uh, no big uh, no big developments on my end. How about you, Patrick? Anything more interesting to add? Well, it's, it's never good to hear about a quiet CEO. So Chris, stay busy for sure. I, uh, yeah, no good. You know, as as was mentioned, you know, we're we're in the run up to COP. So um, yeah, we're 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 at the uh, 
the rubber meets the road for our, the the decisive decade, folks. So uh, if ever there was going to be a successful climate conference or series of them, this is probably the moment for it. So looking forward to seeing uh, what comes out and looking forward to, I suppose, what, what will come next as we as we start to move forwards. I think, you know, with, with all the announcements, I don't know if you guys have heard a few weeks back, the Indian government's in, intent to uh, create blending standards for refineries and and steel manufacturing. That's a pretty bold step in the direction of forced deployment for everybody in the in the hydrogen space, um, as opposed to just national roadmap targets. So if this is the trajectory and this is the movement, and as, as, as we've said, there's a few big, big kind of uh, space conferences coming up, uh, who knows, maybe, maybe we might see some go forward momentum. I mean, just a question for you, Patrick, maybe on that one. I mean, you know, it, it, obviously me and Andrew work in industry and obviously our particular industry hats mean that we have a certain bias towards things. But obviously in the RMI, there's a whole range of different opinions on technologies and on solutions and how we're going to resolve these challenges. And there's obviously a lot of people talking about electrification. And, you know, I think increasingly people are getting into is intellectually interesting. I'm not sure if it's necessarily practically interesting conversation around what can you electrify versus hydrogen and and kind of, you know, that then is feeding into commentary and and often critiques of hydrogen strategies. So when you see things like this Indian announcement, how are people in RMI looking at those sorts of things? Are they kind of going, maybe people are jumping the gun a bit and they need to see what other technology solutions are there? Or even within places like the RMI that have quite a broad range of interests, is there sort of a sense of actually in these areas, it just makes sense to crack on. And even if there is breakthrough and innovation later, this is still a good step to take. What's what's the sort of broad feeling? Um, I think for this like particular answer, the kind of referenced it. It's it's uh, sorry, and I mentioned steel. I, I should have said ammonia and refining. You know, those are the existing markets today. And what we're talking about is that two percent of global emissions that is hydrogen's carbon footprint today getting removed or reduced. Right. I think to the more the broader question about electrification and and, and opportunities like. You know, look, this this is something we've been talking through for, for years, and I think folks are, are broadly aware of it, is that like these are tools, you know, these are these are these are pathways to decarbonize, and you pick the best tool for the best job in the best circumstance. And the one that I always bang on about is if you if you want to decarbonize a three hundred and sixty ton capacity haul truck on a mine site, chances are your direct electrification route is limited. Um, why? Because of the weight, right? It comes down to a very simple thing. If you're if you're living in Southern California and and you want to drive into uh, one of the cities down there, direct electrification might be a perfectly reasonable like like a battery electric vehicle might be perfectly reasonable. It is what works for where for what use case and and I think you know in places like Ormai, yeah, folks are looking at what solutions work best and where they work best, and I think that is always the um, the opportunity. People who are a little bit more uh, zealous or overzealous about the uh, specific kind of uh, virtues of specific use cases without considering the challenges we have, I think aren't helpful. And uh, I, I suspect um, this is why where places like, like RMI are useful, right? Because we, we talk about uh, the kind of the dynamics and challenges you face when you try and implement. And, um, and that's where we engage around hydrogen as we engage around direct electrification, as we engage around everything else. Yeah, no, and I think that's probably a fair, a fair balance. I mean, Something I think we forget, and I think it's just a feature of sort of the the kind of more polarized world we live in in general, is that most people, at least that I have met uh, in the energy transition space, for the most part, are trying to get to the same outcome, which is a decarbonized world. 
and trying to do so in an efficient way. And I do think most people, even people who advocate for technologies that I don't particularly believe in, like blue hydrogen, I don't think most people in that space are inherently have their heart in the wrong place or are not trying to do something that they don't earnestly believe is the right solution. So I think that is a important thing to remember. And I think sometimes we forget the conversation. I am a little, um, you know, little concerned that there is a little bit too much commentary around what is the theoretically perfect outcome as opposed to what is the actual, as you say, what is what is realistically going to be achieved, right? I mean, we've been talking about all sorts of solutions for a long time, right? Battery electric vehicles, for example, you know, we've known that they're more efficient and had them around for 110 years. And it's taken us 90 years to come back to them. And we've got maybe 15 million on the road out of 1.6 billion. Doesn't mean, you know, I don't think anyone in the hydrogen space would ever turn around and go, you shouldn't have battery electric vehicles. They're a bad thing. Um, you know, it's recognizing the roles. And so I'm a little bit disconcerted or maybe a little bit disappointed that there's people who have been in the industry for 30, 40 years and who are now saying, oh, hydrogen is terrible and you should electrify everything. So it seems to almost invite the question, well, what were you doing for the last 30, 40 years? to advocate and make that change happen. And some of them were, and credit to those, but many weren't. And I think that's, a, I don't know, it, uh, hopefully in the run the COP26, there will be a little bit more of a focus on not just what sounds great and what is a nice thing to announce. And yes, we can invest a bunch of money in R&D, but also, okay, what can we do in the next five, 10 years to make an impact? Because I don't know if anyone was watching the news about climate change weather this year. We had 830 million tons of CO2 emitted from Russian wildfires. That is more than the whole of the UK and Indonesia combined. That is more than the entire global hydrogen production emissions combined, right? It's it's just nuts. And the idea we can keep waiting for a breakthrough, amazing new technology, as opposed to taking the things in front of us that I know we're going to have an impact is just crazy to me. Guys, before we run out of time, silence, stunned no, silence. <laughs> no, no, it was it's excellent. And while we, I think this is the venue for us to solve all those decades old problems uh, here today. I do want to get your guys' thoughts on something that you've mentioned a couple of times already, but I think we should probably highlight it. COP twenty six. What are you guys expecting to see? Are there any big highlights that you are expecting to see? Chris, are you attending? When will you be speaking at COP26? So on and so forth. No pressure, Chris. You know. I was going to say, surely Patrick, as part of the UN Green Hydrogen Group, should be speaking first and then me. All right, yeah. Patrick, you're on deck. What do you expect out of COP26? Any big highlights? Anything you're looking to uh, see come out of it with uh, particular regard to hydrogen? Any celebrities you're excited to see there? All the celebrities. God, where else would they be? That's true. Glasgow, Glasgow in the in the autumn is or into winter is 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 you know it's like the south of France in the summer, right? <laughs> I've heard that. Yes, I have heard that. Yes. No, look, look, um, real real ambition. Um, I think, and there's real potential for folks to 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 really uh, move forward here. I think there's a there's a buzz or there's an energy about this cop that I haven't. I don't think I can recall maybe or like anyway in my personal kind of professional experience of it like I, I don't know that there was a sense of urgency or imminent kind of action action might be like kind of you know it, it, departure point let's put it that way um i think it's going to be an interesting one and i think there's going to be some some interesting kind of announcements and things you know like for our for our our initiative and our our work you know we have a report coming out um probably slightly in advance, hopefully, so long as uh, we don't run into any uh, publication roadblocks or whatnot, but um, material coming out, reports published, people taking action, people probably more aligned than they have been in the past. Um, and I think for hydrogen, look, if we weren't getting convergence, 
in policy nationally independent of these sort of uh, kind of major conferences, you'd be kind of concerned or questioning what that looks like. But the fact that you have so many big player countries announcing roadmaps, plans for deployment, uh, kind of standards, et cetera, et cetera, you kind of can't help but think that if this comes to uh, to a major kind of event like this, that the road to getting something at least isn't isn't as far apart as it used to be. Chris, you punted to him. Now, yeah, now you've had time. I expect you to be do- even better than Patrick. Even better than Patrick. Well, look. Um, so, firstly, I won't be speaking at COP twenty six because they're lost, Chris. They're lost. Or the conference. Or for those who don't know, the UN Conference of the Parties and 26 indicates the 26th meeting of, although it's a bit of a fudge because technically this should have been the 27th that we didn't do last year. So this is UK co-hosting with Italy in Glasgow. Um, this particular year, I think from my side, it, it is really about policymakers for the most part. There will be some side events and certainly some events being done beforehand that will feature a lot of what companies want to do in the space. Um, I know the British government actually got pretty inundated with requests from all sorts of different technologies around energy transition, not just hydrogen, but batteries and all sorts of things. So I expect there will be a lot of fringe events and my colleagues, Jen Baxter and John Clipton will be up in uh, Scotland doing various fringe events in the kind of month, uh, month before and month during. So th- there will be a protein presence for sure. But um, ultimately, this really is a moment for policymakers and for big institutional investors and some of the largest corporates to kind of Put, put their hands in their pockets and also kind of, I think, to sit down on the table and have a very frank and honest conversation. And I don't know, um, I'm of the view if there was ever going to be a chance and time for people to do something, now would be the chance and time for people to do something. I mean, take, for example, I think one of the big things that always used to hold back people in the UK was natural gas is super cheap. Natural gas has always been cheap. Therefore, energy transition is going to be really hard. Well, anyone following natural gas prices this year will have seen that they've increased by over 400% in the UK and in most of Europe. Um, and why is that? Well, actually, it's climate change because, you know, we've got increasing amount of drought in Brazil. So there's an increased demand in Brazil for uh, natural gas and for LNG. And in Europe, you've also got a decline in production from the North Sea and other areas that used to supply natural gas because we're trying to transition away. And people are switching from coal to natural gas because we're trying to transition away. And because we've had extreme and unusual weather events, we've had low wind because we've had weird periods of pressure over Europe this summer. So all of those things actually suggest to me that people are finally realizing and waking up to the fact that this is going to be really complicated. Staying where we are is not an option and isn't necessarily any cheaper than making a transition and that it requires real sustained thinking. And I do hear and see that awareness amongst institutional investors. And if you want a really good plug for another podcast, go listen to Responsible Investing. Uh, it's another podcast that's related to I do not new. want people listening to other podcasts, Chris. That's against our interest. No, no, I'm sure it's. I'm sure they're delightful. I, I'm, I'm in favor. It's For those who are interested in the institutional side, it's by a guy called David Hickey from um, a Scottish pension uh, fund called Lothian, and it's also with the church commissioners. So it's kind of how institutional investors are thinking about what their role is and what their long-term stewardship role is in the space. And, and they're just two examples, but there are a lot more people for the first time that I've really seen in my lifetime professionally sitting down with very sophisticated thinking around this piece. So I am quietly optimistic we will see something out of COP26, and I am pretty much of the view if we don't, we will see massive street action and massive engagement from civil society anyway. So one way or the other, uh, this will be an inflection point in our careers, guys, and, and I think it needs to be, frankly. Um, I mean, Andrew, you know, maybe 
good to get just your sense on how people are looking at it in the States. I mean, is, is there something to the fact that people can't travel there that's maybe taking the edge off it or is it a big deal in America at the moment? I would hesitate to say that uh, cop conventions are typically a big event in, in America, <laughs> to be fair. Uh, it's not a headline grabber here at the moment. I think I would be indulging in a lot of echo chambering here if I were to say, if I were to give my views, because uh, you guys have already covered pretty much what I would expect for COP26. And I would further point out that I tried to punt the question to both of you guys, and we've now uh, bloviated on the topic for quite some time, and I think we need to actually introduce our guest. So which one of you two wants to take a crack at that? So yeah, I'll I'll happily take a crack at it, Andrew. So for this week, I'm delighted that we have Maria Fennis, who is the CEO of Hyatt Hydrogen. Uh, Hyatt Hydrogen is a electrochemical compression technology company. They've been operating for about 10 years, uh, based in the Netherlands. And for people who are interested in looking where a number of businesses have come from, they're actually an AP Venture portfolio company. And I think that's just interesting, given that we've had AP Ventures on the show before, and it gives you a sense of some of the other businesses and areas they're investing in. They are known in the States. They have a number of pilot projects that they're working with, and they're also known in Europe for a number of pilot projects that they're working with as well. And I think this is probably an area that people see as a bit too nerdy, talking about compressors, which I think is a shame. And part of what I really hope she'll kind of help our listeners to understand is actually how important that area is. Um, and many people don't dive in and read some of the really boring technical reports around hydrogen and pilots. But for anyone who ever read the sort of um, reports on the EU hydrogen bus pilot schemes, one of the big takeaways from that was the single biggest issue that affected availability and reliability of systems across uh, all of the bus projects they did wasn't the buses. The buses were fine. It was the compressors. Compressor failure and fixing compressors is the single biggest issue to affect availability um, for hydrogen and mobility. And so actually, I think it is a really important area to discuss because it's something that people don't appreciate enough. And I think I have quite an interesting solution here that maybe will work, maybe won't, but um, I think is worth our listeners learning a little bit more about. I think that was an outstanding intro. Well done, Chris. Again, right off top of the old noggin. Any event, let's see if we can get Maria on the line. So Maria, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Lovely to have you on the podcast. And I think we'll kick things off with the background and intro question. Uh, Maria, if you could tell us a bit about yourself, your career, and then jump into Hyatt and, uh, and what you guys do. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Andrews. Yeah, nice to meet you all. Uh, my name is uh, Maria Fennes. I'm the CEO of uh, Hyatt Hydrogen. Hyatt Hydrogen is a small, relatively small company in uh, the Netherlands based in uh, Arnhem. Currently holding 42 employees and, uh, and growing fast because I think everything in the hydrogen space is, uh, is growing at the moment. We at Hyatt Hydrogen, we focus on electrochemical hydrogen compression technology. But besides compression, we also do extraction of hydrogen and also purification of hydrogen. So if you think of the whole hydrogen value chain, how do you get hydrogen at the place where you need it for an affordable price? I think Hyatt's technology is key uh, in enabling that feature. So we can play a role in blending hydrogen in a natural gas pipeline. We are doing a project in the US at the moment where we are actually extracting the hydrogen at the location where you need it and then compress it so you can use it for other purposes. Yeah, for Hyatt Hydrogen, yeah, mainly a technology developer. So we really work on a use case basis uh, with clients all over the world. So clients come to us with a specific use case, see if we can do it. So we usually test and validate it in the in the laboratories. And then we actually transform it into first test system. And then we deploy it commercially. 
So Maria, your your technology proposition is is certainly uh, it's certainly distinct, right? What advantages do you see from these kind of combined design approaches, and 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 how did how did you even come to think about it? Well, it was not me actually. It was uh, the inventor Middleman. So uh, he actually came with the whole idea of uh, decompression technology, which we actually turn around in a compression technology. So hydrogen now exists. 10 years. So I joined two and a half years ago. I have a background in, in chemistry. What we do here in Hyatt is mainly electrochemistry. Uh, so I have a very big team behind me who, uh, who knows a whole lot about it. But yeah, for, for us, the compression part, now with the standard uh, compressors, so hydrogen is, is very small. So that makes it sometimes very difficult uh, to be compressed because it actually wants to go everywhere. So with electrochemical compression technology, we actually use uh, a membrane technology where we're able to pump the hydrogen through the membrane to the other side. And there we actually compress it in such a way that we can uh, build up the pressure up to 900 bars in the chamber. So it's completely silent, no moving parts, so no wear and tear. And I think, um, yeah, that's, that's I think, a very key feature of, uh, of high technology. So but maybe just diving in a little bit more, Maria, and kind of unpacking that. So, um, yeah, the compression, which I think is what historically you guys were perhaps best known for, and I'm sure you'll tell me off if I'm wrong there. Um, but uh, if I think about the compression space, I think um, sort of traditionally people thought of uh, piston compression um, was probably where a lot of people would have gone, you know, and then, you know, electrochemical comp- uh, or diaphragm compression. So those were sort of the two. So piston and diaphragm were probably where most people went, you know, and then electrochemical compression is something that's been talked about for a long time, but had various technical hurdles around it. Maybe you can kind of just talk a little bit about sort of, you know, for complete lay people who've never heard of electrochemical compression and have no idea why it matters compared to piston or diaphragm and probably never even heard of those two terms. Can you kind of just try very simply to say, okay, why why does it even matter? Why are we talking about compressors in the first place? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think for uh, for yeah, compression is very important to make sure the the energy that hydrogen carries, we are able to store it pretty compact because space is money. So we rather store it at very high pressure so we can actually store more hydrogen into a condensed space. So this is where the compression really plays a role. So compression costs energy, of course. Uh, you want to have a process or a compression process which is energy efficient. So this is also one of the key development tracks within Hyatt is energy efficiency. Because everyone wants to make sure that you get the hydrogen in compressed form, liquid or whatever form you would need it. But in the end, uh, cost matter. And, and this is where in Hyatt we focus on. So it's performance, it's indeed cost down and efficient compression. So for us on electrochemical compression, I think a unique feature is that we can play around with the CAPEX and the OPEX. So depending on the, the client, uh, say for, for a compressor system or an HRS station, is if someone says, well, uh, energy doesn't cost me that much because we are in an area where electricity is relatively cheap, then we can play around with, okay, we will install more stacks, so higher capacity, but then uh, because you uh, the, the electricity is lower in price, overall, the whole cost of the system is more efficient. So that is a bit how we can play around with with our technology. So, I, and I think you've given a good sort of overview then a little bit, I guess, about the, the product itself. And, and you talked a little bit about that kind of development. I mean, you mentioned the company's been going for 10 years. You know, it is obviously a relatively new space. Um, I, I think what a lot of investors would be quite interested in is to try and understand when do we think that the sort of technology that you're 
working on is going to be sort of available as it were at that kind of mass manufacturing um, sort of capability and I guess also at a scale where it starts to have a meaningful impact on projects is do you have something of a timeline that you can maybe share with our listeners oh uh, yeah we're already working on that now <laughs> so uh, we already have a pilot line uh, in Arnhem so for for building because actually the the way the system is built up uh, you have the electrochemical compressor so that is actually a bit similar like um, electrolysis and, and fuel cells where do you have the, the modular stacks that you can uh, easily connect in series, create really large systems. So we've done systems up to 250 kilograms per day. Uh, so that's usually how we um, exchange that. Uh, we did a system already in the US uh, together with one of our partners. And actually, we've besides the pilot line, so that is actually the, the way we want to make sure we get some first systems in the market to ensure you have some uh, operation data, etc. But we are already talking with partners that want to have systems up to one and two, uh, even five tons per day. So we, we are really at the, yeah, the foreground of really accelerating. So we also closed with an investor last month, which will give, uh, give us that extra push to uh, really accelerate the business. Maria, I think jumping back maybe to, to some of your, your introduction and, and thinking about the market positioning, given the, the scale of systems and, and, and kind of, uh, the, kind of the, the focus that you have and the engagement with these, these kind of clients already, like who do, who do you typically target? Who do, who do you engage with? And um, I, I suppose who, who do you consider sectorally kind of those, those uh, early adopters or first adopters of the tech? Yeah, so so this is actually a very nice question because uh, you see, especially the, the really big companies, they tend to talk a lot about it, but don't really act. So we really see, um, yeah, some uh, gas grid operators. So especially in the US, that just said to themselves, okay, we want to be the first. Uh, we're gonna invest in this. Uh, we will pay a little bit more, but then we are we are able to get this technology as the first one there and then we can do a big press release and show show what we've got to make also other companies interesting so we have their gas suppliers of course where you think of the ones that really make the hydrogen uh, we have the gas grid operators we have a lot of companies that are interested in integrating our technology so you can think of the building heat and power because i think for yeah it's been in the news for a while now where especially in the netherlands europe there's so much pv uh, electricity uh, which is actually cannot be connected to the grid so what do you do with that power that is where there's a lot of interest in the building heat and power market where they actually want to make smaller home uh, refueling systems where they also want to have our compressor in there because it's so easily scalable we can also have them really small but we can also make them really big uh, with regards to partners so you can think of the ones that build uh, refueling stations uh, the ones that uh, produce hydrogen either by ammonia cracking or electrolysis so our technology is actually pretty unique because we work with uh, humidified hydrogen so you can think of processes like electrolysis where there's actually a little bit of humidified hydrogen coming out so there you can also think of integrating the electrolysis together with our electrochemical process to ensure you also have the balance of plant uh, advantages. So by integrating, I think you can already uh, have a severe cost down. So you can think of yeah, almost everyone who works in hydrogen, who is able to produce hydrogen from ammonia cracking or different processes, even with a little bit of contaminants in there, we can also purify it uh, to ensure you have the fuel cell grade in the end. You know, you've kind of skirted around a little bit, but I'm going to push you maybe, Maria. Can you tell us actually, you know, one or two of the clients that you are working with? Because I think some of that is in the public domain, and but maybe not known to the listeners. And I think it would make it a little bit more tangible. So 
when you are talking about, you know, some of these gas companies, maybe you can give us one or two of the names that are in the public domain and, and you know, uh, maybe a little bit of detail on the projects. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. So um, one of those projects is actually together with uh, Soco Gas. So they are based in uh, LA. So we build a system for them actually to demonstrate uh, or to validate the use case where they blend in the hydrogen in the natural gas pipeline. Where actually in our system, we have installed two of our technologies. So one is the extractor. So where we actually extract the hydrogen from the mixed gas stream. So they think about blending 5 to 10% of hydrogen into the pipelines. So they use the pipelines as a buffer, but also as a transport medium to get the location where you actually need the hydrogen. And then in the end, we also installed one of our electrochemical compressors that compresses the hydrogen up to 400 bars. And that, is a, that system has been running now for, for a few weeks. Um, and will actually, in the end, uh, be used as a as a demonstrator also to engage with other people that are interested in the technology that we proven the use case, that it is valid, and that anyone else who wants to try it out can maybe even lend the system. So they are really an early adopter in this case where they said, okay, this is in our hydrogen strategy. Let's do this and let's show everyone it's possible. So, I mean, just maybe pushing that a little bit further, Maria, then, and... Um... Patrick and Andrew dive in. What comes to mind here a little bit is this sort of perennial debate around how do you actually move large volumes of hydrogen and this sort of sense of do you have to do it all at once? Do you have to completely replace the entire uh, pipeline network? And does it have to be all 100% hydrogen? And if you do blend it, then how do you get the hydrogen back out? And obviously, there are different markets that have looked at this. And in the UK, which I know a little bit better, uh, HiNet, which is a project Caden are running in the Northwest, has looked at this kind of de-blending from the gas grid. Are you kind of then saying or seeing as the opportunity that, you know, for a product like yours, this is actually a viable way of encouraging those gas networks to say, we can use the existing network, put hydrogen into it to 5 to 10% that could be green, for example, and then take it out at the point of use, clean it up all with the same technology. And you've got your distribution for your transport refueling network all in one product. Yeah, yeah, you touched it right. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. So, and th- this is also where we see uh, interest. Eh? So you have the, the big players moving a little bit slowly, more observing. Uh, what we do, see press releases, then get interested and trying to engage a bit more. So especially for indeed the full hydrogen pipeline. So there, there is always a little bit of contaminants or something in that pipe that needs to be removed also at the location where you want to have it. So that is also where we can apply our compressor, uh, which also is selective for only hydrogen. So the impurities will not go through. So there, you have the combination of fully hydrogen pipeline, where we can purify and compress it at the location, or you have the blending uh, where we can extract and compress it uh, to the pressure that yeah the, the customer or the client needs. But but it's really I would say one of the the most interesting uh, use cases where we see especially now uh, from all over the world uh, there there is a lot of interest because yeah what is actually the use in making green hydrogen put it in a diesel truck transport it over the road that then it, it is not that green anymore. <laughs> So rather use something that is existing. And I think in the past, we already blended it in already. So it's mainly going a little bit back to see how we did it then, maybe optimize it a bit further, and then we can uh, definitely use uh, something that is already there. And Maria, I think uh, we're going to shift gears here a little bit and get into the weeds on some of the uh, technical side or the, the legal side. I think this one was assigned to me as the lawyer amongst the group. So <laughs> bear with me. Uh, but this is a bit, you know, this is a big thing that we deal with in the industry, right? And 
So one of the questions is, you know, as a company that is providing this kind of highly technical product, what kind of performance and safety warranties are you guys looking at? And, and have you had insurance, how, how have insurers reacted to those kinds of negotiations and discussions around the, around your guys' product? Yeah, so with regards to uh, electrochemical compression, they actually don't really know because they don't really understand the technology. So this is where we we work hand in hand also with uh, with policymakers and also with, I think in the Netherlands, it's called uh, the NEN. Uh, to try to engage them a bit more, uh, tell them how it works, because now we are being evaluated as a as a standard compressor, where you have a safety factor of times four, which means a lot of bulky bulky steel, which is not ideal. But that was for the Japanese use case. So in in Europe and the US, we we don't have those issues yet, but we do see that we need to take them by the hand from the start, engage and tell them how it works. Because in the end, it's it's not that dangerous, but they, they need to know the working principle because it's it's silent. It has no moving parts. So we take them often to the test lab and they look and they actually see nothing moving. They see only something on the screen going up to, to 700 bars, but they, they there's not that much to see. So it's hard for them to, to understand, but we work in close collaboration also with Kiva and, and other agencies that support us there. Well, it's good that you guys are keeping the lawyers and insurance people on their feet, Maria. It's important. Yeah. You've got to keep, yeah, you gotta yeah, keep yeah. them sharp. And of course, <laughs> you always need to be well insured. Eh? So so that is what we do take care of. <laughs> With yeah. safety also, hazards and everything that you need to do to ensure a system can uh, operate safely at, uh, at the client site. Yeah. And maybe just, I, I can't help resist because unfortunately, I was a very boring insurance person. So if Andrew gets beaten up for the lawyer questions, I get beaten up for the insurance questions. So um, okay. if, awesome. just, <laughs> just on that, I mean, you know, obviously, as you said, it's, it's electrochemical, it's not mechanical. So there's sort of less things to look at. Um, that being said, compression of hydrogen is, is something that a lot of people are familiar with. Purification of hydrogen is something that, again, is quite familiar to the market. Uh, even electrolyzers, to be honest, are in many ways quite familiar to the market. So electrochemical technology is not new to the insurance market. So when you go and speak to insurers and people who are trying to get their head around risk, are you kind of going to them and saying, look, you're familiar with this bit, this bit and this bit, we're just putting it together? Or do you come at it from a totally different angle? Um, yeah, so so that's a tough question, uh, I must say, because we, we haven't been uh, in touch with them uh, that often uh, in this regard. So really going into uh, those specifics. So they really see it more as um, as a system which which has to, uh, yeah, how do you call it, comply with, with ATEX and all those regulations where it's installed at a site. But of course, with high pressure hydrogen, you usually have a safety factor of yeah, a certain amount of meters where you need to just keep away from the system. Um, but but yeah, that is what I can say about it uh, in that far. But yeah, we usually just try them, take them by the hand and, and see how we can uh, can ensure that they, they trust the product, they know the product uh, and they know what it does. Because in the end, it's low pressure hydrogen going in and then high pressure hydrogen going out. We apply currents and it's a lot of steel and polymers. As maybe a little quick follow-on, you mentioned you mentioned earlier, and you know, seeing those balance of plant cost reductions as a as a kind of an add-on or an additional factor, and, and I think that's one thing that folks typically forget about or don't quite appreciate the scale of the cost. Do you do you get a lot of interest from those um, companies who are now you know starting to look at you know green hydrogen development more as as kind of 
how they they kind of build in their compressors and obviously you know the the combined system that you're offering adds a different degree of optionality around designing those systems how how do those conversations evolve or engage uh well th- there's a lot of interest so far you can think of uh, soac technology uh, alkaline electrolysis and and pam electrolysis so they usually work on a or we usually work on a project basis so a client comes to them uh, they see okay this this system of this size and and this pressure could be interesting to do together and then they reach out and then we together uh, uh, make a bit or a proposal so it's really uh, yeah in a in a partnership kind of way where we find um, a nice demonstration site or a first client where we can do this use case but we do see also coming back to the insurance question of uh, of Chris and Andrew is that um, because the technology is so new, bankability sometimes is an issue because we don't have such a big track record in the field yet. They are a bit hesitant, especially for the really large projects. So this is where we still rely on on also some some funding uh, or from from different areas where we make sure, yeah, it's, it's a bit, how do you call it, scoped like a demonstration kind of system where then they are able to to get some funding or additional capital for it. So having it as a standalone system like they do with the standard compressor systems, because we don't have a track record of 100 years, they, they find it sometimes hard to to finance or bank finance the, the projects. And I think that's probably a challenge that a lot of the companies in the space sort of have. And I guess that's an interesting question for maybe not even just hydrogen, but the broader energy transition, which is, if you want to accelerate decarbonization in sectors, how do you do that, given that a lot of new technologies are going to take a bit of time to become you know, established with track record? And so does the whole market have to wait five, 10 years for lots of pilots and demos to happen to give people the confidence to make it bankable? Or does there need to be some sort of new discussion or some sort of new mechanism and relationship between government, between lenders, um, you know, insurers, et cetera, to get people confident earlier or at least to share the risk of people moving earlier so that we don't have to wait for these things to be proven um, before we go. Because obviously, if we're having to do that, we're always going to be behind on where we need to get to for decarbonization. Yeah, I, I fully agree on that. So there, there's definitely a, a bit a push or a change of mindset because especially climate change doesn't wait so that is i think where we really need to move faster all of us uh, and we cannot rely too much on constantly policymakers talking and and doing whatsoever uh, if there are some some big players that that are fully supported of of hydrogen being part of the energy mix well come forward come forward and uh, and work with us i would say and and find the right partners in the field because they are there. Uh, we are also not that big, uh, but we want to do big things. So, I mean, just, I've, I've got one more from me and then I think Patrick, I know you have one. Um, so, you know, are there any other solutions or services that you feel are a natural place for your business to expand to over time? I mean, you talked about how the company already has slightly expanded the scope of what it does. You know, do you see yourself remaining as a pure equipment supplier? Do you see yourself potentially branching into the services space? Maybe you could talk a little bit to that. Yeah, so with regards to, to Hyatt, so for Hyatt Hydrogen, we want to remain the core technology provider. So we will make sure uh, it gets better, uh, it gets more efficient, uh, it gets more cost effective, and that we get even more use cases where we can apply our technology. So our goal here is in Arnhem to remain with a relatively small team. So I'm, I'm thinking of expanding maybe to, to 50 people max. 
where we have the biggest focus on really technology development, but also on, on project execution where we think indeed, or we, we talk with the client on certain use cases. And I think for, for our technology, we've We've uh, been, how do you call it, pretty reactive on, on client requests. But if we want to widen the scope, uh, I think there are so many more opportunities uh, of our technology to, to be validated and, uh, and applied to is that it's endless for us. So uh, also in that regard, if you have a use case or whatsoever where you think, hey, I want to purify it a little bit or I have this mixed stream, can you do something with that? So we do even nitrogen-hydrogen separation, helium-hydrogen separation. And you can also think of industry. So there's a lot of industry where there's hydrogen being vented or just burned, which can also be used for various other purposes. But because sometimes they often don't know what they can do with it, um, they just burn it or vent it. And, and that's just sad. Because I think there, especially with our electrochemical working principle, so either being purifier, extractor, or compressor, just come to us and, and have a look. We are open for visitors now again. <laughs> but no, I, I think it's very important to, to share the knowledge because then we can uh, build a greater future together. So I suppose a very, a very quick follow-on and maybe a little niche, but on, on the purification, especially on those... Um, vented hydrogen kind of streams how uh, i know you mentioned getting it to kind of uh, pem fuel cell uh, quality you know are, are you hitting the the five nines or are you or are you going beyond that in terms of purity potential yeah we have a nice uh, gc in-house so we we measure it uh, after after almost uh, every test yeah very good very good yeah you can play, you can play around with the technology yeah so they're uh, maybe a little bit too technical but the catalyst is a very interesting one uh, with that regard but just the tip of the iceberg <laughs> I, th- I think that's a uh, uh, that's our next uh, interview when when you guys move to the the next tier down on the next system but I, I think maybe just to to, to, to finish us off today um, one kind of broader question which uh, we try to ask everybody but I, I think especially now, given the, the state of the market and as we start to see projects start to roll out, what are the biggest challenges you face as, a, as an OEM today uh, in the market? And well, I suppose what are the things that could be done to, to help accelerate the, the ability for you to deploy your systems? Yeah, so that's a good one. So first of all, um, have, have the, um, the agencies uh, know a bit more about electrochemical compression. So I'm giving a lot of lectures, uh, we're posting a lot of articles and know-how about the technology. But I think for if I if I talk in in the Netherlands and in Europe, we need to go for hydrogen, and I think that is still too much uncertainty, especially on on policy level. I would say where they not yet uh, fully committed. So if the commit how to call commitment is there, sorry, if the commitment is there, then the rest will follow because everyone needs to make decisions on okay, am I going for hydrogen or am I so especially if you look at shipping, for instance. They are at a at a verge where they they need to decide: Am I going for fuel cells, or am I going for a different technology, or am I just going to upgrade my current engine? Because it is not clear for them what uh, the policy will be or the future will be for hydrogen, and if they are able to, how do you call it, fuel hydrogen or or use in in their uh, in their ships, they just choose for upgrading their their current engine because they don't know what the future holds. So I think for, for hydrogen and for the strategy as well, it's deadly important to have a long-term strategy, not four years, think of 10, 15, 20 years, because then the companies will come, then they will commit, and then they will say, let's do this. I think that's super important. 
Perfect. I think that's a great, great note to end on. So Maria, thank you so much for making the time and for joining us on the show today. It was an excellent conversation and really appreciate you uh, even making the time to, to speak with us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for the invitation. I, uh, I really felt uh, or felt honored that uh, Hyatt Hydrogen had the opportunity to be on the podcast. Well, we are honored that you made the time to speak with us, Maria. Yeah, so it's thanks mutual. So This episode of Everything About Hydrogen is brought to you by Bayotech. Bayogas, Bayotech's gas-as-a-service option, provides customers with low-cost hydrogen on demand. Get dependable access to as much hydrogen as you require when you need it. Bayotech produces the hydrogen locally and distributes it via high-pressure transport trailers. Avoiding long transportation distances saves money while minimizing emissions. You pay for the fuel by the kilogram, avoiding high infrastructure costs. Bayotech makes hydrogen easy. Visit Bayotech.us today to get low-cost, low-carbon hydrogen delivered on demand. All right, guys. Well, I think Maria and Hyatt constitute our first pure play, if you want to call it that, compression technology on the show. So let's start with Jackson. Yeah, Jackson, what is your feedback on this one? She was a lot of fun to speak with. So let's start with you. And uh, what did you think? Uh, well, I, I mean, obviously, as you kind of alluded to in the in the recording as well, we are nerds. So, of course, talking about compression just seems like the most exciting thing that we could probably do. And I think... I mean, electrochemical compression? I didn't even know it existed until we had this call. So, hey, this is this is fascinating stuff. This is actually a seriously exciting and important uh, part of the energy system and the hydrogen energy system, right? Because exactly as Maria was talking about, when you think about transportation, you know, compression and how you deal with compression is an extremely important area. If you look at a lot of the earlier hydrogen projects and some of the sort of projects that were funded by things like the FCHGU, uh, a lot of the issues came down to compression and compression technology essentially just not working particularly well. And so it's typically been considered to be quite a low capex item, but one whose failure rate has a seriously disproportionate impact on actually the runtime and availability of the project. Um, and even from a planning perspective as well, people forget that you know things like compressors are pretty noisy. So if you're building things like refueling stations for bus depots or you know even for passenger vehicles and, and that's in a residential area or in an area where there's lots of people, very loud, noisy compressors um, is important. So people don't really think about it, but it's a really important part of the system. And I think uh, you know the fact that you've got a piece of technology here that can go in a single uh, in a single move to 900 bar is very unusual. You know, most forms of compression usually go in layers. So they step it up through different levels of pressure. And, you know, there's certain reasons why, which I'm not going to delve into, but it's quite unusual to go straight to 900 bar. And then the Is that, are you not delving into it, Chris, because it's beyond our engineer? Yeah, yeah. Jump on in there, Chris, you gotta, if you've got something to say about it. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Well, I mean, look, I mean, essentially it goes in step. Oh, he does right? have something to say about it. <laughs> well, Shocker. I mean, Shocker. It, depends on, it depends on which technology you use. Again, if you go to diaphragm or if you go to piston, I mean, so the, the diaphragm compression systems tend to be much larger. And then you're kind of, if you like, you're, you're going up in batches and it depends on whether your electrolyzer is coming out at one bar and then you kind of have more iterative steps. So some sites to get to uh, say 700 bar, you might need five or six compression steps if you're coming out at one bar. And then other electrolyzers that maybe are putting out hydrogen between sort of 30 and 50 bar, you might need three or four steps. 
right? So that's kind of more typical if you think about um, compression or piston technology, whereas electrochemical going straight up in one leap is quite rare as a technological step. Um, but actually the big piece here, which I think you probably picked up in the discussion was really to do with the purification piece. I think that's probably one of the most fascinating things is the ability to purify as well as to compress and having that as an integrated proposition. Um, and what that means for gas distribution network operators is huge. Uh, and, you know, I can just see immediately how for a lot of people thinking about how do you move hydrogen transport and what does distributed hydrogen transport look like and how does that fit in with the gas network? Technologies like this really do change the game in quite a profound way. So I, I think, you know, it's an area we will be hearing about more and probably people haven't heard enough about it yet. And hence why it was an exciting guest to have on. I mean, Patrick, you do a lot with sort of thinking about the big conceptual topics and themes and how you move huge volumes of hydrogen. He's an ideas guy. He's not really a details guy. You're an ideas guy. So what do you make of this? <laughs> just think about stuff. Yeah. I, th- I, I think all that, that Chris has just, just mentioned about the um, the challenges with compressor systems is, um, are, are are some of the the challenges the the real challenges we have now in deployment right like like balance of plant is a, you know I'm thinking particularly for for green systems is a, is a huge huge cost point and you know when we can talk about uh, improving the the pressure the delivery pressure to a step change of uh, as you said 900 bar that just takes a chunk of cost out of your system it's it's just it's money on the capex front and you know obviously the purification aspect uh obviously obviously some of the kind of the dynamic kind of deployment kind of uh kind of situations that that maria spoke to that sort of flexibility is going to enable some level of deployment a little bit quicker and that's a that's going to be an interesting an interesting kind of piece because you know part of running my questions one of the reasons for my questions about the um kind of vented uh, hydrogen is that you know you do get systems where Hydrogen has some mild level of contamination because it's been used in a purification process or something like that. And if you can just manage it or purify it quickly and at low cost, you've got a very, very usable molecule or or reusable molecule in some of those systems. So rather than venting what is an expensive expensive component of of certain production processes, you you get to reuse it. And and that efficiency and that, that kind of gain for kind of various industries going to be quite a quite an interesting proposition Uh, you know obviously it all has to make sense but like if you want to green your footprint rather than taking your your standard kind of offtake from industrial kind of uh, gases company number one if you can cycle back your molecules again and again that's going to be interesting and obviously then you know as as you mentioned chris you know natural gas systems and and and, and that kind of play the splitting back from kind of ammonia the, the decomposition side of things and then ensuring the purity that's that's all going those those are all really really big challenges and hurdles so what can i say exciting times i feel like we say that all the time but now we're in the weeds and it's how we get the systems actually deployed and and this is this is an exciting and interesting change given the, the, the challenges that we see in conventional systems that have caused hydrogen to be expensive for longer than it should have. Um, you know, when we think back to the, the 90s, you know, part of the cost is in these systems, getting it up to pressure at a deliverable rate, getting it to the stage that we, you know, in the place that we need it to at the volumes we need it to. And we get back to compression. You get the choice with liquefaction. But, you know, at the end of the day, we come to cost again and again and again around 
how you get it to the density that it's easy or or cost effective to to transport, and that's something that this technology might be an interesting uh, an interesting departure on. I'm going to ask a stupid question. In the discussion with Maria, she mentioned that their systems are being used. She kept saying with green hydrogen. I presume she means electrolytic hydrogen in this case. Are there are these electrochemical compression systems similar to Hyatt's or Hyatt's? Are they only pairable with uh, electrolytic hydrogen systems, or do they work with uh, do they work with any source of hydrogen? They work with any source of hydrogen. I think the reason why they they make that sort of reference again, I think, is because if you look at a lot of the work they're doing, they are looking at that kind of pilot space. And I think, um, you know, again, as we've discussed before on the show, they're apart from the very large centralized production SMR facilities that exist. Um, distributed hydrogen at the moment, for the most part, has been an electrolytic game. Now, there are more people coming in with small modular reforming technologies. Obviously, Beotech is one, uh, High Gear is another. Um, and there are, you know, two or three other small companies that are starting to come out, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that's probably why, you know, from the Hyatt side, they're talking about that, um, you know, as a, as a piece, Um but I don't think it's it's certainly not to do with the compatibility. And, and to be honest, the reference to the purification piece actually doesn't really make sense if you're using a PEM electrolyzer because it's not a premium, right? I mean, what's the benefit of being able to purify from a PEM electrolyzer when a PEM electrolyzer is already meant to be generating hydrogen that's fuel cell grade? The, puri- the purification play really only makes sense for something like a methane reformer system, right? Or if you blend, right? I mean, which is what she's talking about really on the show. So she's saying, you know, if you dump a mixture of reformed hydrogen and electrolytic hydrogen into a methane gas grid, you know, you can pull that out and figure out how to use it. I mean, to be honest, even if you actually look at the UK government um, thinking on 100% hydrogen networks, when we say 100%, they're not really talking 100%. I think the last sort of technical guidance note I saw was something like 98%. Because um, quite often you're using other gases. I think propane is one of the others that's under consideration to actually help with the flow of gas within the pipeline network. So even from you know supposedly 100% hydrogen pipelines, you're not actually 100% fuel cell grade hydrogen. So you still need a purification element to a lot of this um, if you want to use it for transport with fuel cells. If you want to use internal combustion engines or if you want to put it in a heating system, then have at it. It doesn't really matter. Um, well, not Yeah, so and I think that was something I, I wanted to clarify and, you know, just for purposes of keeping uh, keeping Maria on target and, and asking the questions that she came to answer. That was something I wanted you guys to talk a little bit about is that, because I think if you go back to our previous episodes, most of our listeners wouldn't have, we, we haven't discussed the de-blending part of transport via via pipeline, right? So, you know, our previous discussions have been around, for instance, uh, heating, you know, grid heating systems and uh, boilers at the end at the end use. Uh, I don't think we've talked about the de-blending part, right? So I think that's probably an interesting discussion. I don't know if you guys want to dive into that a little bit more. Not too much, guys, not too much, but a little bit. Uh, why you would want to be de-blending, I understand, for fuel cell or for transportation purposes that might make sense but otherwise you can just keep the blend and use it in a hybrid boiler at the end right yeah i, I think on the you know you see this with some maybe of the, yeah maybe uh, that, I, that was kind of a specific way of asking that question patrick maybe maybe talk a little bit about what the two options there are and why you might do well, it i was just going to say you see it with some of the um 
power companies talking about blending uh, hydrogen in with the uh, into the natural gas turbines, right? So, so effectively, it is so long as the hydrogen has a a lower a lower footprint than the um, than the natural gas, you you end up with you know a decarbonized uh, megawatt hour, right? Generated. So, so there's those combined use points. Um, you know, obviously, if you're you know using it in a home for the boiler or whatever, you know, yeah, same same sort of principle applies. On the direct hydrogen use front, I think I think very simply, it's effectively using a, a transportation network, right? Using the natural gas to to provide the pressure to move the hydrogen, and then, as you rightly say, pulling the hydrogen back out of that system is not necessarily like just click your fingers and it's done. And it, there's a bit of complexity and challenge, and it and it also is going to be a question of you know the relative density, or not so much density, but the relative concentrations of hydrogen within the system. So, you know, if you've limited blending, then running your, your separation is going to be a costly point, right? You're going to run it to, to push more uh, methane molecules back into the pipe and take out fewer uh, hydrogen molecules. So doing this stuff cost effectively starts to become very, very important for folks who are interested in blending as a, as a means to getting to market. So, yeah, very, very interesting, very critical. I think I'll stop there and let Chris... Who, who knows a little bit more, I think, around kind of the, the some of the projects in the UK speak to some of this as well. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, we can get into a lot of this. And I think for listeners who frankly want to get into more of the technical um, and you want to look at it, you really can't do much um, worse a starting point than picking up some of the work that um, Progressive Energy did with Cadent in the HiNet project. It's publicly available and there's a lot of work that was done around deep blending and, and how that might work. So if you are interested in understanding that and, and a lot of it is playing around um, when you drop from the high pressure system, which is sort of 90 bar down to sort of the town pressure level, which in the UK is around 25 bar, can you do things with that drop in pressure? Can you effectively pl- do something clever with the, with typically the energy losses associated with that change in pressure to help effectively um, de-blend hydrogen from natural gas? Um, and, and they go into more technical detail than I think is appropriate for me to get into here about that and how that might work. Um, you know, the thought that I probably would leave listeners with here to consider is, you know, something that is interesting to my mind is we've talked about how do you move large volumes of hydrogen? And a lot of studies will make the argument that pipeline is hugely appealing. What we haven't then sort of thought about is, OK, well, if I ran a pipeline, say, from Texas to California and I had a series of Hyatt units that were running along that corridor that could take that hydrogen out of the network bump it up to fuel cell grade and compress it straight to 900 bar. And I could then have different users and producers feeding in and taking out of that pipeline network the whole way along. What does that look like? Um, Is that actually something that has massive benefits to the system? And who is really the biggest winner in an outcome like that? Because there is a school of thought that would say, well, does that then get rid of the idea of distributed hubs where you move it via trucks? Um, Does that become the single most competitive option for those main routes? Um, and if that is true, then is it about centralized production? Is that the most valuable thing? Or actually, does something like that really play well for distributed because it gives multiple different people points to feed in along that network? It, it's an interesting question. And for continental style hydrogen plays, which are of interest to a lot of our listeners, uh, I think technologies like Hyatt unlock a whole ton of quite interesting ways of rethinking and reimagining how we could use this infrastructure, including, frankly, some of the existing infrastructure. Guys, I think given the time and the place, this is a great spot to wrap up. 
we're going to let it go there. And uh, we'll see you both next time. And that does it for us today at Everything About Hydrogen. A big thank you to Maria Fennis, CEO of Hyatt Hydrogen, for joining us on the show to walk us through a bit of how Hyatt is changing the landscape in the hydrogen compression space. Thank you, as always, to Patrick and Chris for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. And as you know, we love to hear from our listeners here at Everything About Hydrogen. If you have any questions for us or our guests and would like to get in touch with us, please send us an email at info at h2podcast.com or find us on Twitter at, at About Hydrogen. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Thank you.